Hey everybody, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life, a podcast where two movie nerds take the films they like way too seriously. This week we're going to be talking about The Truman Show, a 1998 classic. We will be spoiling it pretty early on. If you haven't seen it, we recommend you watch it or just not listen or just listen and be spoiled. Uh, Mike, what is The Truman Show about? Can you tell me about The Truman Show? Truman Burbank had it all. The job, the beautiful wife, the house in the suburbs, the white picket fence. But one day, everything changed, leaving him fighting against the world he once believed in, the system he once lived to protect, and the city that rejected him. What happens when everyone you know becomes a suspect? When every move becomes a clue and every action a count and mouse game for your life? What happens when life becomes more than just the daily grind, and instead, a dangerous riddle to be solved. Find out in the latest, totally necessary, definitely wanted, crushingly gritty, and dark superhero villain prequel origin story. The Riddler. Riddle me this guy. Starring Jim Carrey. Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Sorry. <laughs> that was good. It, it, as soon as the voice came, I was done. after by the way right in the right in that run right with the, the, Riddler. The, the top run one the of the highlights run. of any actor's career hey guys welcome again to this film could be your life uh my name is jonathan devine i'm joined as always by my friend mike overstreet how you doing mike i'm doing well so like i said we're talking about uh the truman show and this is you know i think it became a very cult sort of following film it gained a huge reputation again released in 1998 Uh, Kind of a landmark movie, I'll say, for Jim Carrey's career, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, And, you know, the plot is that there's this guy who uh, unwittingly, unknowingly is in a TV show, starring in a TV show that is based on his life. And since birth, he was adopted by a corporation and every moment of his life is being watched by uh, by millions of viewers and his world is slowly starting to unravel, and he has to process that. I guess is how I would word it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's Mike, a good way to put it. that's I mean accurate. Mike, what is your uh, pat relationship with this movie? Uh, you know, when did you first see it? What's been your response to this movie over the years? Yeah, so growing up, it was a cable TV movie. Um, it was one of those movies that I would pop in on or find on TV during the day. Um, and it's a movie that is not really understandable at all, watching just bits and pieces of it here and there. So I would actually say, um, I knew about it. I had a sense of it, but never really thought much of it until actually I went to college, watched it for the first time. I'll be honest. The first time I saw it, I thought it was just a perfectly fine movie. Um, and then it actually wasn't until my early twenties that I was dating someone who was like, you have to watch this movie. And I was like, the, the Jim, the Jim Carrey one. (laughs) And I watched it again and was blown away. I mean, I think this is at this point in my life, the quintessential movie 
that I would label as I always forget about it when I make my list of great movies. But then every time I watch it, I'm like, why isn't this a top 10 movie for me? Why haven't sure. I watched this in four years? Um, I just think it's a near perfect movie at this point, but I'm sure we'll yeah. get into that. Yeah, I, I think in some ways my experience is similar. I, I have a little bit of baggage from uh, I was raised in a, in a relatively conservative Christian home. And this was one of a select few movies that sort of made it onto the, I think, Bible Belt cultural consciousness as a bad movie TM. Yeah. I, I mean, like morally bad movie TM. Yeah. For yeah. my family specifically, that got couched. And so I saw this movie when I was actually relatively young. I can't imagine why we watched it. But what I remember is I don't really remember understanding it. But I remember that my sister was, is, who's just a couple years older than me. So at the time, she would have been really young. She would have been, you know, like a either late elementary school or middle school. And uh, my mom hated this movie because it gave my sister horrible nightmares that she thought that she was. Uh, in a TV show, oh my god! <laughs> as as I think a lot of kids with a active imagination might do, you know. Um, and so for a long time, the only thing I remembered about this movie were I think that's the movie that's very anti-Christian and anti-God, which was honestly the reputation okay. it had yeah. in Christian circles. It might still, I don't really know. And also, uh, I don't think it, it has many uh, religious. My family ideas doesn't in like it. it. It it doesn't have a lot of religious overtones. You're right. It's very subtle. But the the conservative Christians picked it out. I don't know how. I don't know how they found it. Um, and the the added sort of baggage of uh, my family didn't like it for this reason. So I didn't really. So I think you know I, I just sort of knew it was a movie and it had this baggage. I didn't think about it. And then at some point in college, like you, I, I think I revisited it and thought it was really good. And then in the last couple years, um, I went to it with a more critical eye in terms of filmmaking. And I was like you, I was totally blown away. Yeah. I was just like, you know, and I, but I think you're right. I do often forget about this movie and it wasn't until this most recent watch that I actually went back to it on my Letterboxd uh, app and, and rated it up to five stars, which means I don't, I can't really think of, almost anything wrong with it, which again, we will get into a little bit more later. Um, and I think, I mean, I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's a, a bold take to say it's one of the most underrated movies probably that I've seen in terms of sure not really understanding why it doesn't have more conversation around it other than just that it's from the nineties. Um, I actually think it's one of the best high concept movies ever made but made sure. in a way where you actually feel like it's ridiculous world is realistic. You know, you yeah. actually find it believable, which is pretty unbelievably. I don't know. That's just talent. Honestly, that's it, good writing. It walks a lot of weird lines or I should say very difficult lines. And I think one of them, like what you're saying is that it's kind of satire, but it also takes itself very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't, it doesn't really wink at you, even though it has fun with its premise. And yeah. uh, and we'll get into that more actually right now. So the first section we have is discussing why this movie works. What makes this movie a great movie? And I don't know about you, but I have a long list yes. that I was typing as I went. So I'll try to kind of categorize this as much as possible. And who knows? Maybe we're just going to gush for two hours. But I think the first thing you have to start with 
is are the actors. Yes. And specifically, let's just do let's do Jim Carrey right now. Um, and actually, in an interesting way, I think this ties into what you were saying about the way that this movie gets underrated. I sort of think, and I already pitched this to you a couple days ago. I sort of think that his role in this movie is so good or his performance is so good that in a weird way, it works to the detriment of the movie's reputation Yeah, because I think people just are the only thing people talk about is, Oh, that's the movie where Jim Carrey suddenly became this dramatic, serious actor. And he's amazing. It's like, that's true, but the movie is so much more than that. But we center on him because his performance is so, so good. Well, Uh, what do you have? Well, yeah. Well, it's actually really interesting because I was doing just some internet research on this. And one of the things that came up was Jim Carrey was hyper aware that this was his turn into dramatic acting, right? I actually Um, didn't know that. Yeah, there was actually a little kind of tidbit about how on the set people and other actors weren't allowed to bring up his other um, silly movies, pretty much all the his career before this moment. They weren't allowed to talk about it. They weren't allowed to address it. Um, he actually came onto the set, I think, with a very different attitude about breaking the mold of his own stereotype, which I think you see in this movie. Yeah. I, mean, I think what stood out to me was, you know, one, his performance is great on a dramatic level, but even the way that he uses like his physical comedy that defined his sillier stage of his career, you know, the big smiles, the weird expressions, he still uses those in this movie, but they're used for a far different purpose. They're used to make him charming, to make him come across as wonderfully naive. And they're actually in a weird way. It's the same kind of physical humor, but it's used for a different purpose. So effectively, which is to flesh out this character as like a very immediately uh, likable and easy to connect to character. And I, so I I can't say enough about Mm. it. It's just a fantastic tightrope act by him. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I ended up asking myself, you know, why do so? Because I, I thought a lot about Robin Williams, who's another classic example of an extremely uh, physical comedian who turned a corner at some point in his career and became this overwhelmingly gifted dramatic actor. And, you yeah. know, the hypothesis I kind of I kind of formulated basically along exactly along what you're talking about is that they both sort of know they're both used to acting with their whole body, right? Yeah. And they both, it, you know, we, we tend to fixate on facial expression and, and voice when it comes to acting. But the reality is, you know, you've always heard that phrase that, what is it, like 90% of communication is nonverbal. And I don't know if that's actually true. But, but at any rate, I think it, some, there's an element of truth to it. And, you know, I, the thing, you know, the, the scene I specifically was thinking about that I wrote down here is do you remember the scene um, where he's heading into work and it's the first time and it's when he really starts pushing against everything around him. It's when the radio goes kind of wrong and, yeah. and, and he starts walking around and he doesn't go into work and he goes into a random building and stuff. That whole scene, there's like a five minute stretch that he doesn't say anything, but his care, but his, his body language is conveying that he's, uncertain that he's fearful that he's questioning that he's you know it's just all there yeah without any words and that's when i was like oh this is why he's so good at this because he's used to using his whole body to convey stuff because he's such a physical comedian you know it's just amazing 
Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just literally watching someone with a toolkit that's only ever been used for one thing, uh, kind of apply those tools to an exactly different trade, but they're still yeah. equally effective. I mean, yeah, I, I can't think of many people who have made that jump. Most of the, uh, Robin Williams is a great example, but most of the people who are kind of crammed into a corner with a set of tools they have as an actor, mm. when they try to make a jump, they either have to completely throw out their old tools it happens all the time with the comedians that do become serious actors or they, they fail. I mean, they're just not good at it. Right. And yeah, it, yeah, I think you're right. There's these moments of this movie where his physical control is such an unbelievable gift for an entirely different purpose other than comedy. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll throw this at you, Bill Hader. Yeah, absolutely. maybe. Uh, yeah. thinking about we're both big fans of Barry and I think that was a huge moment for a lot of people and in a similar way it may be more subtle but I think in a similar way he's he's using a lot of his gifts from his comedic roles but he's applying it very differently obviously and the result is astounding so yeah. I it is it is interesting the way that a lot of them can do this a lot of comedians can do this um does this qualify as one of the best lead performances of the nineties? If not ever, <laughs> I wrote that down. Just, I, just go on, we're going straight for it. I mean, come on. I'd have give to me the hot take. Through the give 90s. me the hot take. We're talking about things like Shawshank and uh, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. And, I mean, there's, uh, a, there's a lot of movies in the nineties. My man. Um, I mean, Keanu and the matrix. Yeah. Point break. That's up there. Uh, um, Humphrey October. <laughs> yeah. So probably a top, top 100, but, um, but no, I mean, I actually, you know, we'll get into some of this with what didn't work. And I do think uh, Carrie's performance in this is a double sided coin. I think 99% of the time it works, but there's still maybe one, maybe a little bit more percent of the time where his silliness does distract. Um, it doesn't necessarily belong in the performance. Um, so it is interesting for the most part, he nails it. But then there are moments sure. where like, you hammed it in that scene in a way that wasn't actually necessarily fitting for the scene. Um, sure. I think of some of the stuff with the argument with his wife later, which is largely one of the best scenes of the movie. Don't get me wrong. I was about but, to say, I love, I love that. No, whole no, no, sequence. I know, but there's just a when couple he's kind of going crazy and driving to, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. But, so for the most part, it's great, but there are just a couple moments that I think would keep me from calling it one of the best performances ever <laughs> um, if you don't mind i'll, think, I'll stick to it okay. i'll come i'll return to this in a year and and if i still think that i'm gonna i'm gonna swing it but but yeah it's amazing but i it think is, it um, is fantastic yeah. i i do see what you're saying there are points where i'm like oh i'm watching jim carrey here right yeah absolutely and that's a great it's arguable yeah and and you can make a decent argument that maybe that detracts from certain scenes. Um, certainly I don't think, I, I think you would agree if it does, it's not a lot it's and it's outweighed absolutely. by the, yeah, it's outweighed by the other, you know, how good the other thing is. Uh, I'll tell you this going back this week, I was like, okay, I know Jim Carrey's amazing, but I actually want to talk about two other actors as well. Who totally to blew me away. The whole supporting this has an, guest, yeah. This has an all-time supporting guest. Yeah. Like, it really does. I mean, so, you know, the one I, I didn't have any notes on, so if you want to do a bit on, Paul Giamatti's in this, and he kills it. Yeah, he's there. Uh, it's a small, it's a very small Paul role. Giamatti. But he, Paul Giamatti, my man. 
um, Scully from Brooklyn Nine Nine. Yeah, it is. It is surprisingly great role. Yeah. Um, even though he has all of like two lines, uh, but no, the the two that I really, really, really want to talk about, I really want to talk about Laura Linney, who I never really noticed before, but is putting in like an all timer performance. I think if you don't know. Uh, Laura Linney is uh, plays his wife Meryl. His, his wife in the show, or I guess in real life, it's hard to distinguish that in the in the fiction. I guess um, the th- I guess the only thing I wrote down, and, and but the thing I, I was so like amazed by is all of the actors in this in this sort of movie have to do this really difficult thing of at certain times doing this fake acting, this fake overacting because, you know, they're acting as actors in roles. Yeah. But they also have to very intelligently let reality bleed through in weird ways. And I think she, maybe just because she has the most screen time, but I think she does that perfectly. And the way that she has this fake aura most of the time, but every now and then you see the real act, you know, the real character who's portraying the actor come out and it's so good. Yeah. You know, it, it's just so well balanced of a performance. Yeah. I actually, I mean, that was one of the things when we were texting about this movie um, during the week, that was one of those mm-hmm. things I was like, you have to watch for this, right? Was yeah. that in any other movie, these performances are bad performances, right? Because they come off as someone clearly, trying to act but the fact yeah. that that's the point makes it in that they're doing that intentionally makes yeah. it a subtle and i would just i would imagine it's harder than trying to put in a pure dramatic performance right adding yeah. this extra layer and i actually i mean i think she does great the one that struck me was uh i think his name's noah emmerich is that his yeah is that his, best his friend name? marlon yeah And the way that he only speaks in like one liners and cliches and basically comes across as like a scripted robot trying to be a human being like is phenomenal. Like everything he does from, you know, when he punches him in the shoulder, like football players do, or when he's having like the heartfelt conversations about like, where would you go? It's all these ridiculously cheesy Hallmark movie knockoff lines right yeah and he delivers them in a way that i mean obviously we'll get to the scene later but when ed harris is feeding him lines is the only time he comes across sincere in the entire movie and beyond that you're just like oh this is a two-bit actor essentially doing an amazing performance of what that would look like if that person was taking himself way too seriously yeah Um, it's phenomenal i don't know the performances in the movie are phenomenal and then, and you know, it extends to all the, you're right. It's, it's so much of the supporting cast, even like, I don't, I don't even have their names, but like his mother and father and the other, his coworkers and all this. It, I think part of the advan part of why it works is because it creates, you, you sort of feel the same unreal unreality that Truman does. Yeah, right. Absolutely. That you have that same, like kind of claustrophobic, uh, you know, this is, there's something that feels fake. There's something that feels off uh, sense, man. I didn't connect this movie to the matrix until now the matrix came out one year after this movie. 
it is kind of interesting how similar a lot of their anxieties are yeah about yeah. Un- the unrealness of life and and you know the the hollowness and fakeness of what's around us uh that's a bigger point that I'll probably uh that we'll get to later but uh but yeah i just think i think a lot of the supporting cast in the in in the bubble and the sphere and sea haven his friends and family just walk that weird line in such an interesting way um but then to 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 pan out a little bit uh ed harris who doesn't get introduced until the last 30 minutes i think of the movie um also an all-time performance i think and and you know I think I'm stealing this from someone, maybe even from the rewatchables with both, which both of us listen to a lot. Uh, Ed Harris never makes a movie worse. He no. always improves everything he's yeah. in. It's always a plus. And for such a small role, I think he probably has 10 or 15 minutes of screen time. You know, I think of him when I think of this movie, I, for, I think of yeah. Jim Carrey and then I think of Ed Harris. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I actually almost think, when I was coming back to it, I remembered him first in a crazy way. I was like, cause I'm just thinking of honestly the final scene, which we will talk about later, but he is, he is a God in this movie. Yeah. Obviously he plays God. Hey, he hey. is a literal acting God in this movie. Um, really the scene where he, when you first are truly introduced to him, where he walks uh, Truman's best friend through that conversation, I was just referencing yeah basically gaslighting him and convincing him he's crazy. And the entire Mm. time he's like cueing the producers to build the music and the drama. (laughs) And then it closes and he goes, that will win the ratings period is one of the single most evil, but also like profoundly great performances um, that you're going to find. I would say in any nineties movie, you want to talk about like a supporting role (laughs) performance. It's up there with Hannibal Lecter and stuff like that. And I also think, he just does a great job in small details of his acting of capturing mm. this really dark relationship that his character has with Truman, you know, where he's thinking of himself both as a God and a father of this person that he's deeply manipulating. Right. In which he actually probably thinks he's helping Truman when really he's the self-centered, selfish monster. I mean, but that's the he secret has an affection. Right. And he yeah. captures that dark twisted balance i think mm. in the smallest moments like when he yeah he's talking to truman at the end trying to convince him to stay and he touches him gently like you know uh basically rubs his face on the screen uh, like this like soft touch or uh, he's watching him sleep right and oh it's just it's amazing i mean i think that like you're totally right. The strength of the, it's kind of just the writing and the character, but it's also obviously the, the actor at Harris that he, you, you totally believe that he believes he's in the right. Yeah. You know, even though the things being presented to you are so obviously not good, you believe that this character would exist and would also think I'm doing the right thing. A detail I never noticed before is that the, they have uh, the security guards in the in the moon uh, HQ or whatever it's called uh, have shirts on that say "Love him, protect him," oh, talking about Truman. Jeez, and the idea that that and you know and they never say I don't think it ever comes up in dialogue, but I just saw that and I was like, that's absolutely what Kristoff, the character, would tell them. He would yeah. say, "Our whole job here is love him, protect him," and 
that that he really does believe that's what he's doing. He really does believe that he is protecting Truman and that he's giving him the best life he can. Um, even though he's obviously not, and it's obviously self-serving. Uh, it's just amazing. I will say also, so just going, keeping down the list of, you know, why this movie works. I just wrote down length. It's a one and a half hour movie. It's really short. Uh, And it keeps, and yeah, it keeps the pacing. There's, there's absolutely a universe where the person who, who was making this movie got really lost in the weeds on the world. Cause it's, it's, it's basically a sci-fi short story. If you think about it, right. It's just, it's like this weird little setup that doesn't, and we'll get to this later and maybe why this movie doesn't work. It's this weird little setup that doesn't really logically work the more you think about it, but it kind of, but it's, it's a really fascinating idea and the movie doesn't, again, it doesn't lose itself in exposition or, um, you know, going down too many rabbit holes. It keeps its pace up. It keeps us in the story. There's no, as you know, I, I guess length and pace is what I mean because it also yeah, yeah. just really keeps the, the energy up. I never got bored, you know? Well, and I was thinking about that negatively and positively in terms of some other comparisons. Like, I think in a negative sense, you know, Idiocracy, which I think is a funny movie, is the antithesis of this, where you're like, that. Sh- you need to know that this is a 60-minute bit, and they spend an extra 45 minutes exploring the world in a moment where you're like, I don't care anymore, and the movie drags in the, in the last 30, right? But I think yeah. a, a great example you know, that came to my mind is a movie like Looper where Looper, yeah. if you sit with it too long, has some serious <laughs> plot holes. Yeah. But you don't catch them in the movie. You don't catch it because it moves so quickly. It spends the perfect amount of time and depth of world building and exploring that world. And it doesn't dwell on over explanation. Right. And in that movie works fantastic. Like I said, if you, if you think about it too long after the fact, you're going to obviously get to a point where there's some issues, but overall, in, while you're watching the Truman Show, there is never a moment where you're like, this is absurd. It doesn't make sense, right? Right. Um, which is a hallmark of a perfectly paced and perfectly length movie, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and it made me think about, I mean, you're right. The, uh, that was a good example. Just like a lot of movies actually, I think, fail at that, especially when they have these kind of high concepts just in general, by the way, I think idiocracy is crazy overrated, but that's a longer, different conversation. Well, it, it's a great I do agree. 30 to 60 minute bit. I mean, that's sure. really what it is. If you, the, if the moment they get to Costco, now we're talking about idiocracy, yeah, the movie fine. should have ended. I mean, it yeah. just, it's just like, yeah, the Justin Long scene, hilarious. We need to cut this. This is not important. I guess my thing is more, we're, we're just going to go down this tangent real quick. Just uh, <laughs> welcome to the idiocracy podcast uh, where we talk about idiocracy all day long. Um, my thing is more that it's, and this will sound unbelievably pretentious, but I'm okay with that. I think this is an early idiocracy is an early example of something that makes people feel overly smart for getting what is a very simple premise yeah so like like i guess maybe i don't have an issue with the movie but it's the it's an early example it's very much like rick and morty yeah where a lot of fans are like oh my god this is so incredibly like 
deep and it's giving yeah. you this incredible message and people don't understand. It's like, no, dude, everyone understands. Yeah. It kind of, it, it's fine. It, it's, it's like, oh yeah, that's interesting. I don't think it's a very deep movie. I don't think it's saying anything particularly interesting. What I don't but think, I don't think, judge I don't think he thinks it is. Yeah. I don't think my judge thinks it is either. I think he's, you're right. I think he thinks it's a, it's a cute bit, but people take it like very seriously and are like, oh my God, the world's becoming like idiocracy. I'm like, oh man, shut up. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Anyways, thank you for listening to our idiocracy podcast. So what do you, uh, I, I yeah. have a lot more stuff and why it works. What do you got? Well, I think the one thing that really worked for me, especially on this rewatch, um, is the way the movie flushes out what this reality would look like in some very tangible ways. And I think the two that came to my mind the most was how they structure his life. But then the Mm. other one was how that would inevitably erode, right? How it's inevitable that this would eventually fall apart. And in both of those ways, it was actually incredibly, I thought, realistic. If we're going to buy into the concept, it was pretty powerfully spot on. Like, I think the the moments of advertisement are perfect. I mean, just perfect. The two guys who keep forcing him in front of the chicken advertisement or whatever. Um, I love every time the wife shows off an item and tag- yeah. says the tagline. Um, the friend repeatedly commenting on the beer, that's a beer. Or when he walks in to like break up the argument later, he comes in beer first onto the cameras. <laughs> and you're like, this is what a corporation would do. Like, this is yeah. what these would look like. And then um, the other one that really stuck with me was the concept of structuring his life along plot lines. Right. Right. Because uh, like, you know, as a spiritual person. Well, and we they have- say, sorry, sorry, real quick. And they yeah. say over and over again, episodes. I yes. kind of forgot that. Do you notice when he's like, yeah. uh, Christoph says stuff like, I saw the episode where you lost your tooth and had to do this. Or someone says, that's like the episode yeah. where, you know, he met with the girl or whatever. It's again, kind of terrifying, but it's exactly how they would talk about this if it existed. Absolutely. And like I said, as a spiritual person, I think of life in terms of narrative. So there is something very human about that. What this movie captures phenomenally well is how a corporation would take that human impulse and then just make it gross, right? Like, it's not just us thinking of our lives as narrative. It is monetizing, structuring our life around certain narratives, like romance. I mean, the whole idea of staging his father's death so he can have, like, this power, both to manipulate him, but also to give his life, like, a turning point. It's disturbing, but it's also something that you could see a corporation doing if they were trying to Absolutely television so yeah the the structuring of the advertisement and the episodic nature of his life uh really i think did a great job they did a great job of flushing out what that would actually look like well and and you know just to build on top of that i wrote down all of the interstitials of the people watching the truman show which for the first two-thirds of the movie is the only part of the outside world you see you don't see the headquarters and the crew and stuff uh, you just see we cut to the people watching and commenting on it. First of all, it's just great world building because they get to deliver exposition without it feeling like exposition. So like they'll cut to the waitresses saying, oh, this is the girl that did this. Can I have that? Can you lend me that episode on tape or whatever? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, they cut to the the security guards uh, talking about 
you know, oh, well, they don't really show them having sex. It always cuts away and they play a little music. So in a weird, so you see how it's delivering exposition about the world Absolutely. and like fleshing it out yeah. without having to just tell you what's going on. Well, yeah, um, and, and it builds a very um, natural wink at the the sci-fi reality of this. Like, I love the people that we see reacting to the concept of Truman, whether they're people mm-hmm. trying to save him or they're people trying to explain away why they, you know, should be doing this horrible thing. Um, and and what I love about that is you most sci-fi movies are going to capture right that human impulse to revolt or to uh, maintain status quo and that's going to actually be the central driving force of the conflict of the movie yeah. this one doesn't do that you get all of that from these snippets of the outside world you get that this stuff is going on around yeah. truman but it isn't it isn't inside the bubble so in a sense yeah. it's almost always periphery which i think is just a brilliant move i could see again if this was a longer movie there could be an entire plot about a side character who's trying to break him out. And it actually shows them making their plan and trying to get in and like a heist kind of thing. Right. They don't do that. They just, they let you figure that out through, like you said, that small exposition um, kind of side tangent moments, but they leave the right things to your imagination. Yeah. Like I, I found myself, it's funny. You were talking about the people like who maybe would try to break them out. I was watching really closely this time because there's so many details too. It's just a very well, it's just a well-made movie. And so there's a lot of little things you can pick out when we go to Sylvia uh, in the outside world, the, the, the girl that he kind of connected with and tried to tell him that was fake and got kicked off the show. Um, when we go to her apartment, if you look around, you can see that she has all of this paraphernalia about freeing Truman that clearly there's a movement that she's part of. It's like, there's protests. It's, there's a sign that's like, you know, join the protests. Uh, there's, you know, thing there's, she has, this is really cool. And I never noticed it. She has pictures of cast members, not on the show, but in real life and notes about whether or not they were amenable to helping the cause. So like she has Marlin and it says like, like not interested or like, like, you know, can't get to him. And it has like the, the newspaper guy and it's like, you know, he's talking to this guy. So maybe he, maybe he's an asset. It's like you're, and you know, it's just enough information that you kind of are, are going to imagine the rest of this world that you think, Oh man, they're probably, they're probably doing court cases that we don't see. They're doing protests. Like you get to fill out all these blanks, man, the more I talk about it, this really is a sci-fi movie. Yeah, it is. Right? That it, it's a it's, it's definitely a, a dystopian. Yeah. And it is almost assuredly also sci-fi. So the second part of that is actually something that fascinated me even more though, and that is that they really do a good job of fleshing out how in this reality things mm-hmm. would slowly begin to fall apart. Like the erosion of truth yeah. belief that this is, you know, real is actually incredibly believable but they do it with really small failures, like really small moments of things that just slip, right? A very human moment where someone forgets to do something. um, And that's what ultimately leads to Truman's slow realization of the troop and then his descent into apparent madness, right? And I actually really like that because they don't make it a big reveal for Truman. It's not like there's this Oh, it's a television show. It's it's very small things. Obviously, they have the yeah. light that falls from the sky. 
kind of starts the, the movie, right? Yeah, the the rain coming down on only him before the rain starts coming fully. Which is great. Yeah, his dad showing back up and how they strategically try to like put him back in. Um, his car radio <laughs> obviously is a fantastic scene where he hears like the, the them describing his movements and everyone reacting to feedback. There's the actors in the elevator. Um, I think one of the ones that like I love is the moment when Truman realizes that no one can hurt him. So yeah. he walks in front of the cars and they all stop. Uh, no he starts one holding out his hands. Yeah. Yeah. No one reacts to him yelling or making a scene, right? Uh, the nuclear power disaster is obviously hilarious when the cop says, you're welcome, Truman, even though he's never met him before, <laughs> right? Great, yeah. So there's like these moments of like this reality would unravel in bits and pieces. I don't know if you caught any any of those kind of moments I mean, yourself. I, th- I think like, you know, there's great examples. And, and a lot of these are just really small details that the more you watch the movie, you start picking up on. I love the way that uh, someone pointed out to me, the travel agent, when she comes out and she's kind of late to, to meet him, she's wearing a makeup bib. Yeah. Because she was just in makeup because, uh, you know, she's never been to her job before, probably because he's never <laughs> gone to a travel agent. Uh, that also reminds me of of one of my favorite, one of the funniest scenes in the whole movie. The movie has a lot of humor and that really works for its pacing. Uh, possibly the funniest scene in the movie, I think, is when he goes to the hospital to, and and yes. they're doing they're doing the surgery. Yeah. And he's and the doctor is so terrified. He's like, I'm making the first incision. And he's kind of cuts in, and then the actor on the table starts to shoot yeah. up. And Truman's just watching, like, what the hell is going on? Um <laughs> it's amazing. Like, you're right. The way that they are able to to convey like you know, this, this doesn't really hold up. This wouldn't, you know, if you push against it even a little bit, it starts to fall apart. And, uh, oh, and, and then I was also going to mention when he notices just, just in the line of, of the world falling apart. I do love when he, uh, realizes that the, th- that the bicyclists, the other, the, the walkers in the car are all looping. Yes. That they're, yeah. that he's sitting in the car. He's like, wait, 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 they're coming back around. And, uh, yeah, just poking holes in, in, in this world, I think is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it, it build it obviously builds to like climax, but, but again, I think a cheaper filmmaker would have done this as a big reveal in his world yeah. would have fallen apart, but in a almost realistic human way, you're like, no, this would unravel because of simple human error of a, a writer not thinking about the fact that someone might eventually notice that someone's riding the same loop on their bike. Right. Um, small details that we all miss in our jobs, like every day that we just get on, we get on, we've done it for 15, 20, 30 years. And we just stop thinking of the small details, but when it's someone's life, they're going to notice. Right. And, and again, I, I just think it's impressive because this didn't have to be written that well or that human. It could have been yeah. going for shock or awe more. And yet it captures reality like really, really well. Yeah. The way that you will just not notice things that, that, you know, actually have a huge impact on you. But, but Christoph says, and we'll get, we're going to get to this later, but Christoph has the line. We accept the reality of the world with which we are presented. And yeah. I think it conveys that in its own way. Very, very well. Well, and it, um, and it also yeah. shows that, 
real quick and last point it shows that breaking of us no longer accepting the reality we've been given in some really comic ways that I do think brings a lot of needed lightheartedness to a very serious thing. Like I love that he suddenly realizes it's super weird that his wife has random advertisement reads, you know, basically what kicks off that argument when she shows Mm -hmm. the cocoa drink and he's just like, who are you talking to? And then when she yells at the camera, do something, Friend shows up holding out the beer, right? And then she screams, how can anyone expect me to carry on in these conditions? It's unprofessional, which is one of the best lines of the movie. But I just love that, like, he has a moment where he's just like, no, this is weird. This this is odd. This doesn't make any sense. But you're right. Up until it started to crack, she had probably done that 100,000 times. And he never had been like, people don't talk like this, right? Yeah, this doesn't make sense. Who is she talking to? Yeah. Like she's not talking to me. Yeah. Uh, also the, you know, just one last little detail that I loved uh, on the kitchen table. There's a huge vi- or There's a huge bottle of vitamin D pills because if they are living in a giant set, they don't get any vitamin D from sunlight. Oh, that's good. That's it's good an catch. unbelievably clever movie. I mean, they really, yeah. again, it's a sci-fi movie at heart. They think through a lot of details that you wouldn't even think about. Um, I'm just going to list a couple things real quick. Cause I just have like five or six small things. The music is really great. Yeah. I, I just, I just made a note of that, that uh, it, it's a little nineties, but it works for me. Um, the movie's not subtle in a good way. I think that, you know, there's a certain art to just being straightforward with things. Again, it gets back to, I think a worse version of this movie tries to be a little cute and a little clever with some stuff that this movie just knows to, to just put out there. Like, yeah, that that's exactly what this would be like. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have commented on this. The movie is very ahead of its time. Yeah. First, first I, th- I think that it's funny because most people talk about that in the context of reality TV. It kind of predicts reality TV. Uh, one other thing I kind of thought, though, is uh, are you familiar with the term parasocial uh, relationship? No. Tell me more. Or, or, or parasocial. I'm not sure if it's relationship, but. Basically, the the way that uh, in this day and age, people can form what they feel like is a relationship with a online personality, yeah. like a YouTuber yeah. or a Twitch streamer or something, and feel like that is my friend, even though they obviously don't know this person. And I think the connection there to me was just the way that, again, those interstitials with all of those people watching him, and they all feel so connected to his journey when in reality they don't actually know him at all. And actually there's a very dark side of that too, because I noticed this time around the way that they are all very invested, but they also don't really care about him. The person they care about the story. Absolutely. So I noticed that the waitresses who are constantly commenting on the story, one of them says, one of them says, uh, Oh, is he going to make it to Atlantic city? And the other one says, no, he's got to go back and have it out with Meryl. And she's clearly excited that the next part of the show is going to be his argument with his wife, but she's not realizing that's a negative thing for him. Uh, It also comes up in what I realize is one of my favorite lines of the whole movie. The very last line when the two security guards, after you've gone through this whole journey and the two security guards, well, I think what, what do they say? Right. They say, I think, um, what else is on? Yeah. Right. Like you've gone through this whole journey and they're just like, oh, okay, 
that was fun. That was a good show. Uh, is there some, you know, what what else are we doing? Is there something yeah. else to watch? They just watch. It's just like yeah, they don't. You don't really connect with these things on live television. Yeah, yeah. And then they're like, okay, what's next? Yeah, but and in the weird way, yeah. I think, yeah, I th- I think we're I think that's also ahead of its time. That's a lot of how we have these pseudo relationships that don't amount to anything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So well, yeah, I I, know, that, I, that's yeah, go ahead. No, I put down how deeply prophetic this movie is. Um, especially in terms of capturing honestly, how gross our society and culture has sure. become on a number of levels. And I think you're right. I mean, when it comes to media, uh, reality TV as a small part of it, I think it is overblown that that's like the focus. Um, but mostly like you were saying, I, I did not heard that term before, but I did write down this idea of being connected to celebrity of knowing yeah. celebrity, right. Um, of being so deeply invested in the lives of people we don't know. Right. But I actually think what really struck me in terms of how prophetic it was, was in terms of its conversation on corporate power, you know, this idea of corporations owning people, um, you know, the fact that there can be a corporation that essentially enslaves a person to make entertainment that produces the revenue of a small country, they say. Yeah. Point, right. Um, and, and then more than even that corporate reality, I think it captures unbelievably well the, how do I put this? The evolution of the Ed Harris character in terms of how we've seen characters like Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs kind of evolve sure. in our world. People who are pulling the strings of basically our entire econom- uh, economies, you know, that are capable of controlling masses, manipulating masses. Even mm-hmm. the idea that they say that Ed Harris's character is deeply private while he's yeah. constantly taking away someone else's privacy. These yeah. are throwing away lines or throwaway lines that have just hit the 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 artery of like what yeah. our current culture is going through and and i don't know i i was just struck by that in a number of small ways this this time through no i think you're totally right and, and you're spot on with that character too i think it also gets at these this idea of you know we live in i think this movie actually has a lot to say about capital capitalism frankly sure. which we'll get to that, that's what my essay is about so we'll get to that a little bit later but just one small thing that I didn't mention and you made me realize is that, you know, this character who has created something very successful is therefore seen as infallible. Yeah. And because they talk about him almost like, I mean, they almost talk about him like a deity, even oh, the yeah. other, the other crewmates and the, and the people working on in the interviewer, they're like, you know, he's just this genius isolated person and he even looks like this kind of eccentric steve jobs-esque figure and i think it's very accurate the way that we we tend to worship people who make a lot of money and who are very successful in in the way we look at things and we think that they are artistic geniuses um yeah I, i totally agree i only have one last thing for why this movie works um and it's maybe a little bit abstract, but I did notice I'm actually stealing this from a YouTube video. There's a guy named uh, Nerdwriter One who has these great video essays. Great. And he has one talking about great, right? He, there's one where he's talking about um, Truman Show. One thing he points out that is just a really 
great detail. And again, a way that this movie doesn't take the easy way out is the fact that the world Truman is escaping from is like very pristine and beautiful, genuinely beautiful. Like the, you know, the, the open water and the blue sky and even the sunset and sea Haven is objectively like, a, you know, I would hate to live there, but it still is a very pretty little town. And the only thing you really see of the world he's escaping to is a dark door. Yes. And I had never thought about it until I watched this thing, but they were, but the guy was saying like, that's a very bold choice because again, a lesser filmmaker, I think wouldn't would have tried to portray like the world he was escaping to as even more beautiful. Like, cause that's the shortcut of being like, okay, this is a good thing. But I think the movie takes the more hard perspective of like, we don't know what he's escaping into. Maybe it is worse. Maybe it's, it's unknowable. I actually think we do. We, every scene we see of people in the outside world, they're working meaningless jobs. They are in small cramped spaces. They're in dirty bathtub in a dirty apartment. Right. They're glued to television. Like that's, I, I completely agree that he goes into the dark door. Then that is a profound unknowing, but we also know that what he's going into is banality. Um, he's going into, yeah, into <laughs> the unknown in a really, you're right. A very yeah. daring thing to do. Um, he's yeah. not escaping to paradise. He is escaping paradise into the freedom of a, honestly crappy world in a lot of ways but which is a really really there's a lot of commentary there and now and we really will get to that later i think but i just think that's a particularly great detail yeah uh do you have anything else for why this movie works what makes this movie great oh yeah yeah we have to we have to talk about the ending um this is a movie in which the ending I mean, it's a great movie on its own. It's not one of those movies where the ending makes an otherwise okay movie great. I'm not saying that, but it does take an otherwise great movie to, you know, five star status. I mean, I can't imagine this movie without the scene of his escape, really the scene of him going into the ocean and then realizing he went to the ocean and being shocked by that and the cleverness of that move. Right. Um, all the way through to the end is one of the best shot. It is one of the best scored. Um, I'm not sure when he basically takes his bow. And then the, for the first time, in the movie, the score jumps to actually kind of unnerving um, dissonance for the first yeah. time in the entire yeah. movie. It, it is just a masterpiece of a 10 minute run that yeah. I can't think of many films that do it. I mean, that have it that to this level is what I'm trying to say. Well, and it gets back to pacing too, because it, I mean, I think a worse movie would drag all of that out a lot longer. It, it keeps that section very short, but very hard hitting the shot. The shot I always remember is when, so his boat crashes into the wall and there's a moment where he's, the music's kind of going and he starts banging against the wall, but the sound on him is cut out. So all you hear is the music and you, yep. and he's silently banging against against the edges of his world, literally. Um, it's just very affecting. And then this is also the amazing conversation between Ed Harris. This is it's worth noting. This is where the subtlety uh, leaves the table. Yeah, I, it was probably gone before, but you maybe left the table before. But this is where it leaves the, the house. 
um, when the sun poking through the clouds rings out in a booming voice. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I think maybe there's a God metaphor in this movie, but I'm well, not he, sure. He even starts with, I am the creator. Yeah. Of a television, of a television show. show. And there's the perfect pause before he says that. And you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. You're God. You're like, I see what you guys are doing. I, I do really think- love the line where he says, say something. God damn it. You're on television. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. great. It's a great, it's a great scene. What were we going to say? Well, I was like, I mean, that entire scene is phenomenal and I'm actually, we're going to walk through it a little bit later um, sure. in terms of that back and forth between him and Harris. But I actually was really struck by, um, this, the, the scene with him and Giamani that came before it in this rewatch. Yeah. You know, I know what you're talking about. Turns on the weather, you know, he's convinced he's going to turn back and he's, you know, he starts leaning in, getting worked up and you really, again, the movie could have had him have a monologue where you're like, this guy is evil, but instead yeah. in a perfect way of him losing his cool, they show you that he doesn't care about Truman at all. Yeah. Um, you know, they have the whole, the, I think it's executive says, you know, the whole world is watching. We can't let him die in front of a live audience. And he throws out one throwaway line, which is he was born in front of a live audience. Yeah. It, so why Amazing can't he die line. in front of it? Yeah. Um, Amazing line. Yeah. Man. And then when he's, when he's hitting him with the lightning and he says, again, hit him again. Right. Yeah. You, you just, again, Ed Harris's performance carries the script to another level. That's a perfectly written script to make you, if you had any doubt about who Ed Harris is and what he cares about, gone in the subtlety yeah. of the writing in that scene. Yeah, um, I, t- I completely agree. I think the way that, and, and you're right, you, you kind of mentioned it, but you didn't dive into it. But the way that like even the people around him are starting to push back on him. Yeah. And and that's how they demonstrate that he is truly losing his cool, because, you know, if they didn't include that, if they didn't include Paul Giamatti literally tearfully saying, no, you're just going to kill him, then you would part of you would think, well, wait, is this kind of normal? Is this just like what these characters lives are like? But by including yeah. all these reaction shots of the people around him, they get to sort of demonstrate, oh, no, this is really going off the rails. This is this yeah. is something different in this world, and it's just so effective. Which is, which is such an and again, this is going to veer into the philosophical, but it is a also really effective conversation of these people realizing they've they're taking this person's life when he's actually about to die, but they never realized that they were doing that the whole film. Yes, in slow dragging ways. Yeah. Uh, they're suddenly shocked by their behavior when they actually might kill him, but they never once stopped and were like, Oh, I'm, I'm robbing this person of their freedom and their life. I'm essentially killing them every day of my life as a job. And it's never bothered me until I see it viscerally and in a permanent way. Right. Yeah. There's a very fascinating philosophical conversation there of what we allow as human beings. um, And at what point we actually, are willing to object, but absolutely. I, I totally agree. Um, let's get into what holds this movie back from being even better or even more effective. <sighs> and I actually have a very interesting segue because so, so right off the bat, I couldn't think of anything obvious. I have some nitpicks, some like kind of plot things, plot hole ish things yeah. that I'm like, uh, you know, and what we were saying earlier, the more you think about the premise, certain things start to fall apart a little bit, but 
I was floored by the fact that I, I can't think of anything really significant. It, it It's a pitch perfect movie, but I do have one very spicy take for you. This is the, this is the hottest thing we've said on this show. Maybe. Are you ready for this? I'm going to blow your mind. Cannot wait. And it segues right from the last conversation we were having. So remember the question is what holds this movie back from being even better? Hot take. Would this movie have been better if Truman didn't leave at the end? Hmm. It would have been darker. <laughs> I think the thing I was I was I was thinking about when I was watching it most recently, and again, I was like really reaching to make this question work. The question of like what holds the movie back from being better. The more I thought about it, though, I think maybe there's an argument that something about the end of the movie lets us off the hook of some of its deepest questions. Yeah. I think because it gives us something very satisfying in the context of a question that's actually very demanding on us. In that sense, I kind of connected it to Get Out. You and I have talked about before that there's this really interesting conversation. Welcome to the Get Out podcast where we talk about Get Out uh, (laughs) 24-7. There's this very interesting conversation because the the original ending of Get Out was significantly darker. And um, Jordan Peele... Uh, actually has has gone a record and talked about why he he amended the ending to be brighter because he said I just didn't in in the, in the cultural conversation for who that movie was speaking to it just wasn't I I, I think he said something in the effect of it just wasn't worth it to to bang them over the head again essentially to just like the world already sucks and this in that topic it's it's about race and he's like we're already in this in this situation with race. I already got the point across. I didn't need to leave them in this, in this sad place because of it, which I think is obviously valid. I wouldn't disagree, but there is maybe this element where because it's a, it's a quote unquote happy ending. It kind of lets you off the hook. And with this movie, I was just wondering if you think there's any, there's, do you think there's anything to the idea that with an ending where I'll give you two alternatives. One is he doesn't leave. He chooses to stay based on what Christoph tells him. The other one, which is maybe more feasible is if the movie doesn't tell you what he does, I'm not sure how they could pull it off. They, things would have to change, but I just mean, you know, high concept, just thinking about the overall story arc. If the end of the movie was that you weren't sure if he bought into what Christoph told him or truly wanted to leave, I just think there's maybe an argument that that could make it slightly more effective. I don't know. I, what do you think? I think the uncertainty is the only way you can go. I mean, one of the things that I put down for what didn't work was basically the entire move by Ed Harris at the end to try to catch Truman before he escapes. Like they shut down the city. They turn the sun on uh, the freaking moon becomes a spotlight. Uh, Everyone goes to first positions and then freezes. You're just like, (laughs) there's no putting this genie back in the box. Right. Um, If you are going to try to prolong this show, which there's a whole point of this, which is that people love it because they think it, they're watching something real, even though it's controlled and thus not real. Yeah. No one's going to believe it's real ever again because Truman's never going to believe it's real ever again. Yeah. He's going to start acting like the other actors who are slightly off, who are trying. Which he work. does on that last day before he escapes. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed that, but yeah. Absolutely. But no one's going to want to watch that anymore, right? I, I don't yeah. know. 
I guess the better question is if it does in that if it did in that way, does it become a slowly dwindling and then failed television show? Um, <laughs> too big of a budget, but um, yeah, I don't I don't know. It's kind of like within the concept of the world, unless you're going to go eternal sunshine on this and make them erase his memory. Mm-hmm. I don't think it, I don't think they're, he can stay. I mean, I think yeah. that's the whole point. It's, it's done no matter what. Yeah. Everyone else is coming at different moments to that final scene to the realization that this can never work again. Right. Yeah. That um, something has been fundamentally broken. I, I think that's a fair point. It was just the only thing I could, I literally racked my brains for like real tangible stuff of what could improve this movie. I I think there's something fascinating to the idea of like, of of making it just, just punch a little bit harder in that sense. Yeah. Other than that, I don't have anything. I have a lot of nitpicky things is what I call them. So details that I'm like, uh, you know, that's maybe whatever. I don't know. Do you have anything in terms of why this movie doesn't work? Or, or what stops this movie from working better? So I have a couple. We already talked about, I think we get a little bit too much of old Jim Carrey at some points where his tongue's hanging out. Um, and I honestly think that if he did this performance later in his career, he would have toned down that a little more in the spots where it doesn't belong. Yeah, uh, I think you're but right. I, again, that's it's not a huge thing, but I do think there are moments, you said it best, I'm aware it's Jim Carrey in the scene. And that's distracting. Um, not often, only a couple times. I think the CGI, what little of it that does exist, wasn't needed and it never ages well. Talking yeah. about distracting from movies from the 90s. You're just like, when they show the dome from the outside, you're like, this is dumb and I didn't need to see it. Like, you didn't yeah. need to show me this. Um, I agree. And I think, and this isn't, this isn't something that doesn't work. It works fantastically, but it is unnerving in a way where I almost wish it didn't exist. Um, and that is, man, everyone in this movie is so evil, right? Sure. And to the point that you're almost like, and I shouldn't say this because I know human beings can be this evil and we are this evil and we do horrible things all the time. But there is a moment where I was like, is everyone in this world the worst human being who's ever existed like the the just the depth that they go to manipulate this man is really Mm -hmm. funny like his father's death we've talked about that how the throwaway line about going to fiji becomes his obsession um you know really small parts of the movie like his favorite tv show is just explicitly about not needing to leave because the joy of small town life and the importance of close friends is all that you need to worry about um you talked about the travel agency earlier how all the posters in it are like lightning strikes, planes, <laughs> and terrorists which is warnings. great yeah yeah or i actually really also love the scene in the classroom where he's like i want to be an explorer and she pulls on the map and she's like oh well you're too late there's nothing left there's to nowhere left to explore great and these are hilarious but you're like the depth of the darkness of this movie in terms of its impression of humanity when you really sit with it is rough. Yeah. Does it work? I, I, it works fantastically. Yeah. Is it always like enjoyable once you really sit with it? Uh, I don't really want to think about myself through the <laughs> of this movie, like what it's saying to me about my humanity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that gets to a lot of, a lot of the things I wrote, but I mean, I agree essentially with what you're saying that 
I mean, there's a great quote you and I have, or I've mentioned to you a few times that I, a plot hole cannot be something that you think of after a film. Yeah. I've always stood by that, that, you know, a true plot hole is something that within the context of a movie, you realize, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. In that context, I don't think this movie has any significant plot holes, but has a lot of things that you do realize later. Wait a second. And you're right. Yeah. I think a huge part is that you're that part of me is like, wow, there's a lot of people that signed on to just really, truly psychologically torture this person uh, on live TV for like 30 something years. And yeah. And in a sense, you're right. Like that, that leads you to one of two places either. Well, that's not very realistic or perhaps more disturbingly, man, maybe that, maybe that does kind of track. Maybe we were, we really re- would do that. Oh, um, I think and, it does track. I just said it wasn't yeah. pleasant. I mean. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think it is definitely. A, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I, I have one more thing that didn't work for me. Um, like nitpicky or like big picture. Uh, I mean, you decide. Okay. Um, Truman's collage of the other girl is incredibly yeah. creepy and uh, <laughs> serial killery. And I, in general, it didn't work for me. It just I actually, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to strong disagree. I, I, cause my thing is you were making one last week. Cause I have one in my closet right now. It doesn't, I mean, everyone does, right? Like you have your, your collage of a dream girl. I actually, I, I do though disagree because I think it, does a great job of portraying the depths of his inner desperation of the fact that he like, cause it is disturbing, but I think it's, it's one of the only times the movie really lets you in on how psychologically disturbing the premises that he had this one moment of real connection yeah, and he longs for it so bad that in secret, he has to construct a reality or, or, or you know, you know, piece together this form of reality that harbors this real connection that he longs for so badly. And so I I think it works, even though it is deeply disturbing. Can we be Um, sure that he hasn't been slowly killing women who look like her over the course of the show? (laughs) Have they been burying bodies? I mean, I was kind of thinking if they wanted to keep the show relevant over time, they may have to change genres. What if one of the genres was like kind of a Dexter esque show <laughs> where he's a serial killer <laughs> and I, I, people would watch that probably that would Bro, be a huge ratings. I'm not convinced that this isn't already that um, <laughs> this isn't already that was like, uh, I mean, are we sure he's not killing people? Disagree. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, John. That's, um all of the other negative things i have are nitpicks which i think can fit into stray thoughts do you have any other big picture stuff no i'm ready for okay. stray thoughts I have stray thoughts which for me is a lot of little nitpicks let's just go let's just alternate uh okay. so my first take i do not buy that that one dumbass police officer says you're welcome truman how much money was that guy making to make the most stupid mistake you could possibly make. It's so dumb. I, I'm every time I watch, I'm like, I, I just don't buy that. There's someone that idiotic. Okay. I, well, every time work. I see that scene, he's not going to work in this town again. Let me tell you, <laughs> he got fired. He got insta fired. He walked yeah. back. They radio hit him like two seconds later. Like, Hey, uh, Gary, you're gone. 
what the hell? What was that about? Anyways, what do you got? Um, so this one didn't age well. Yeah. So they make it clear that Truman and his wife have sex regularly. Yeah. Is this prostitution? And if so, what in the living hell is yeah. like, is, how is this allowed? I mean, the idea of hiring a female actor to have sex with a man in a fake marriage and to live her entire life that way. All I'm saying is that probably doesn't happen in 2020. Um, I, just no. throwing that out there. I would, I would think not. Uh, <laughs> it is weird. And it's one of those things that the more you think about it, you're like, wait, wait, what was going on? Did that work? Yeah. How did that make sense? I guess in general, a lot of things about the premise, one of the things I wrote down, I don't they buy baby just to be clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. First anyway. on your conception they talk about. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't buy that. This show would have stayed popular for that long. Like tastes go in and out too quickly and he's in his thirties. So you you expect me to believe this show has been top of the top of uh, the ratings for 30 years. And not only that, but the more I thought about it, I don't buy that anyone would watch this show. This sounds yeah. unbelievably boring. That's what like, I was going to ask. That was a question I was going to ask you. Is the Truman show boring? Yes. The answer yeah. is yes. And the yeah. answer is no one would actually, we would watch it for approximately 15 minutes. And then you would say, I'm just watching someone at work. Like there's, you know, there's Twitch streams of people just living their lives and they don't have millions of viewers. They have like, you know, a hundred people like, Oh, that's kind of interesting. I don't buy it. would be popular this long. Um, Really quick, because it's basically the same point, just worded a different way. Uh, the math doesn't work out either that Kristoff is the one who invented this show. But Ed Harris is in his late 40s and Truman <laughs> is in his 30s. So do you are you telling me that he thought of this show and got it made when he was 15 or 16, would, somewhere around there? You want to talk about making this show even movie even darker. I mean, that's dark. That's pretty He's like a 15 year old kid who is like, hey. Here's an idea. And the executives were like, great idea. We're like, done. Let's steal a baby. <laughs> <laughs> this is beautiful. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, what, else, what you got? Anything else? Oh, yeah. Um, how does Truman not wonder deeply why people in his life keep getting kidnapped and disappearing forever? You would think that would come up at some point. Like he never stops and is like, it sure is weird uh, that everyone I talk to who starts randomly telling me that my life is a lie just disappears for eternity. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's odd. Just throwing it's that weird. out there. Uh, I have two quick ones. Uh, at some point, Ed Harris says, zoom in, and they zoom in, and he says, enhance. I yes. always hate it when movies do that every yes. single time. I'm like, this that's so why. dumb. Why, why would you have that? Why does every movie about the future have to have an enhanced scene? I think right? this was especially a 90s thing, though, right? 90s had that a lot. It's, it always reminds me of Super Troopers. They make fun of it. Enhance. <laughs> <did>. Enhance. Enhance. <laughs> um, similarly, or, or not similar, but just another really small thing. They can't drive the boat. They're actors. You know that boats aren't that hard to work, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, wait a second. No one on the stupid island can drive a boat. It's literally like, it's just not hard. Even a smaller boat. Like, I just didn't get that line. I was like, what? Uh, what else you got? 
Well, this is my last one. And that okay. is, and I don't know, maybe you can't answer this question, but how long do Truman and the crazy stalker political activist girl make it once he gets out? I Man, mean, I would I like thought to of know, that too. I would like to know the average lifespan of a stalker serial killer marriage. Right. Um, but basically the fact that she, you loves, think they get married. Oh, I think she, I mean, she, she at the least, at the very least becomes a stalker because she <laughs> like, she seems to love that he makes creepy serial killer mis- like collages of her. Um, she is super <laughs> into it whenever they show her watching him do that in the, the movie. So yeah, I think, I think she tries to make it work. I'm interested to see if Truman very quickly is like, Oh, that one moment on the beach does not make up for the fact that you're a crazy person. Um, see, that's why I took it for granted. They weren't going to get married. I think they, they try to start a relationship they make it like a week and then realize that they don't have share any interest whatsoever. And then she's like, she's like, Oh, you didn't live your entire life on a fake TV show. What yeah. do we have to talk about? Yeah. It's like in actually that brings up another point. How much does Truman know about the real world? Nothing. Like, does he so participate stupid. in, but he seems to know that there's like a government that like, does he know he lives in the United States? Does he know who the president is? Does he vote? Does he know what oh, the question. law it just starts to open. And again, these aren't truly negative things. Uh, it's just weird. It's stray thoughts. It's exactly what's on the table. Do you think Truman is why Trump gets elected? Oh like, my God. Anyway, I'm done. I'm uh, done. My last stray thought. My last stray thought. Uh, how much money did Truman win in the lawsuit? Because you know that every lawyer in the world, if, if this is a company that has the income of a small country, and he has probably the single best case ever argued in a court ever. How much money do you think? Because either they settle for literally like a billion dollars or he sues them for literally like a billion dollars. I think yeah. that's the only way out of this, right? That uh, it's just not. How much do you think he makes? Um, You know, my, I had a similar question, which was how much does he make when he inevitably fails at all of his ventures and just writes a book about his life? And that's probably, you know, that's a multi-million dollar book sale right there. Memoir. I would say I, in the lawsuit, I actually don't know if he'd sue them. I think you that's, don't know. I, I actually think Truman would just fade away and like go to Fiji and change his name and never be seen again. But see, I, I kind of thought similarly, I guess I thought he would uh, do a lawsuit, get a lot of money not know what to do with his life and probably become an insurance agent because <laughs> he probably knows a little bit about how to do it. And he, it becomes just a fun story. He tells people probably that every now and then he, every now and then he gets a, well, I, I would think every now and then he gets a customer who's like, Hey, you look familiar. And he's like, well, actually, did you ever, I, I used to be on a show. Uh, I think it, I also think it fades from cultural consciousness very quickly. Oh yeah. I yeah. think that like, it's it just like those guys immediately. Yeah. That's, I was going to say, it's just like those security guards, like within a couple days, everyone's like, oh, okay, that was kind of weird. He becomes a minor celebrity and then just, you know, nothing really happens. Uh, do you think he ever works for TV again? Oh, that's a hard no. Um, hard unless, no. He, unless he truly gets bankrupt and desperate. Cause it again, to- I, I actually don't know if he knows how to be an insurance salesman at all because his job, they kind of just set him up. Like I'm not sure he knows how to do 
anything. I think he might get a job and he suddenly is like, oh, this is what work is. And like, I, I never understood this. Like, I don't know. Oh, no. This is not a rosy <laughs> future we're baiting for poor Truman. Okay, everybody, uh, thanks for... Nope, I'm not going to say that. That's weird. That's weird. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Howdy, folks. Welcome to... Now, okay, going into this next section, we call this uh, Talking Points. Essentially, Mike and I have both prepared a essay of some kind and a few questions to go along with it just to dive deeper into some aspect of the film that uh, each of us just independently found really intriguing uh, i think this week i'm gonna go first uh is that okay mike yep great so the 1990s had a dilemma to be clear a lot of the mainstream culture in the 1990s had a dilemma uh it was a problem that i think became an obsession for a lot of key creators in that decade in terms of film i i think of three movies that deal directly with the dilemma Fight Club, Office Space, and maybe a little less directly, The Truman Show, all of which were released in 1998 or 1999. And the dilemma that they were dealing with was a question. Why am I working at a job that I hate? I think this was a crisis point for a lot of middle-aged white males uh, who, not accidentally, are the protagonists of all three films. You know, these people have been taught their whole lives that capitalism was the ultimate good in the world and that they were in this fight to the death with the evils of communist Russia. But then in 1991, right at the moment that most of them are starting to enter the workplace or leaving college and are finally getting real full-time jobs, capitalism won its final victory and the Soviet Union collapsed. We had done it and all that was left now was to make money and be happy, which we had been told and taught over and over again was the goal of life. But I think during the 90s, a growing ennui started to set in for those struggling in these countless white-collar, faceless corporations. I think they sort of had this growing sense of disdain for the promises that they had been made. The equation that was given to them was make money and you will be happy. And they were making money, but they were not happy. And I think that's a tension that all three of those movies speak directly to. You know, Office Space came out in 1999, and it's a film that I think, or the film that most directly answers this question. Mike Judge deals directly with this idea of a man who's engaged in the soul-sucking dreariness of a white-collar job, and who realizes that he finds no purpose or meaning in it whatsoever, and he can't bring himself to continue. Hilarity ensues, and by the end of the film, he's gotten a job as a construction worker and is finally content. So I think ultimately, Office Space's answer to that dilemma, that question is, it's worth it working at a job you can feel content in, regardless of what that means for you financially. Fight Club takes a much more violent, complex approach to the problem. It's you know a cult classic film. It's one of Fincher's first real breakthrough movies. And it dives deep into its protagonist's fragile mental state, a mental state that's brought on by an abrupt sort of 
distaste for and understanding of the banality of modern life. I remember the scene where he asks why buying a new chair for his house is supposed to make him happy. He asks why his meaningless job and his empty relationships with his coworkers are supposed to matter. And I think as opposed to Office Space, Fight Club takes a much more cynical final view. It sort of embraces the conceit that there's not really any logic or meaning to anything in the modern world. That the syrupy, saccharine rat race is as void and plastic as as it seems. And all of that brings us to The Truman Show. Because the most recent time watching it, I was struck with the realization that in its own way, the movie addresses the same dilemma. On the surface, you could watch the movie and think that Truman's questioning of his world starts with the breakdown of the physical components of it, the stage light falling outside of his house, the rainstorm that's just over his head. But I would argue that these giveaways to his true reality have been happening his whole life. And at the point that we watch Truman in the film, for the first time, he is actually primed to begin to seriously question what's around him. In other words, Truman is who changed to be able to see what's happening. The circumstances have been the same. And I think the thing that primed him to change that led him down this road was the same sense of emptiness from his life that these other films deal with. Consider how often throughout the first two-thirds of the movie, Truman's quote-unquote friends and family, the actors of his friends and family, try to convince him of how satisfying his life is. They tell him that he's happily married. They tell him that Sea Haven is a perfect place to live. They tell him that he's lucky to be working at his job. And conversely, they're also constantly putting up new goalposts, giving him new challenges of the next thing to do. His coworker tells him, you know, they're making cuts. You're going to have to work hard to keep your job. His wife, Merrill, reminds him constantly of their need to save money, to pay bills, to prepare for a baby. And the reason why I think this speaks to that 90s dilemma that I was talking about is that this little culture they've created is the true cage for Truman. It's not the giant movie set. It's not all of these physical barriers. Kristoff, in his interview, says, if Truman really wanted to leave, we couldn't stop him. We see it at the end of the movie. Truman sold out to the idea of escape, completely uninterested in the web of lies behind him, keeps on sailing through the storm. It wasn't the storm or the water or the walls holding him back, but his relationships and his commitments. Why am I working at a job I hate? For Truman, every person in his life is shouting answers at him over and over and over again. And over the course of his life, he's come to realize how hollow each answer has been. Compared to Fight Club or Office Space, this is something that I actually find I appreciate more about The Truman Show. Because I think that this movie takes a much more complex view of the problem itself. The movie points out that there's a lie at the heart of the modern world. The idea that all of this cultural baggage of accomplishments and material means anything in and of itself. Truman grasps this problem when he asks Meryl, why do you want to have a baby with me? You can't stand me. He starts to understand that the happiness is not in the thing itself as he's been told, 
but that there's some other element that has to be present. She's telling him that the key to happiness is a baby, just like it was a promotion, or it was them getting married, or it was going to college, or it was getting a good job. And in Truman's world, where all of those things are forced on him, are unreal and hollow, the truth becomes exposed. None of those things will bring you happiness in and of themselves. It's about how you respond to them. And I think this ties so beautifully with the way that mystics across all of human history have talked about these same dilemmas. In fact, it's a really core part of a lot of Buddhist teaching. The idea that there's this problem that we face that is sometimes described as attachment, as holding on to the things of this world as though they, in and of themselves, are how we find peace and contentment. And I think that's the challenge of a movie like The Truman Show, is that it asks you if you are continuing to believe that the next thing you buy or the next goal you reach will make you happy in and of itself. Christoph says, we accept the reality of the world with which we are presented. Truman's breakthrough is simply that he chooses to not accept that all of this ephemera is making him happy. Truman's breakthrough is simply that he chooses to question what is around him. And that makes all the difference. I thought it was a single clap for a second. No, you got the slow clap. I got the slow clap. The slow clap into the build. It's reserved only for the greatest of monologues. I will be honest with you. That's all I've ever wanted from you. We can quit the show now. We're done. You're Uh, free of the banality of your life. uh, So I do have some questions for you. I don't know if you have just any general response or I can just dig right in, whichever one you prefer. Um, I mean, I think generally I, I would just say it's spot on. I actually really appreciate the connection to Fight Club and Office Space and how it captures, or Truman captures that reality in a way that's, despite its absurdity in the premise, uh, is actually more true to life. And I think hits at those, the, the real essence of those anxieties more realistically than those other ones do. Because I think, it approaches it not with anger and disdain, which yeah. is like at the core of those. And that's not to say that some people don't feel that way, but I think the majority of us feel more like Truman does, which is that it touches on those realities as they actually are fake yeah. slightly off in a way that you can't really identify while you're in it, you know, kind yeah. of something that slowly erodes with that question of why, like, why am I, doing this why do i care why do i yeah i I just think that's true to the heart of of that existential anxiety so i I think that really hit home i think that's yeah you know it's funny too because i didn't even mention i i actually had other examples too because i mean it was just it really was a pressing question seemingly in the 90s i mean this is where dilbert the comic starts yeah and this is essentially the entire premise of the comic is they are white collar workers 
uh, dealing with the ridiculousness of white collar corporate jobs. Um, this is also the matrix, which I, I actually initially had, but I thought my essay was too long, but the matrix was also released in 1999. So all four movies were released in a two year span and really dealt with these exact same questions. Obviously it kind of went a different direction with it, Yeah, but that, that, you know, a lot of people forget the entire first act of the film is him in a dead end corporate job, white collar corporate job, um, feeling like there's something more to life. I think he says that quote at some point. Um, And actually that's a decent segue into my first question for you. Uh, I kind of presented my own train of thought of why this became a pressing thing in the nineties. And I think that I, I definitely do think that the way that in 1991, the Soviet union collapsed as, as maybe weird as that sounds, I think it directly impacts this because you know, it was the the dominant cultural question for, for 40 years or whatever sure, was yeah. we need to win this ideological battle and suddenly having won it, I think sort of highlighted how, how saccharine a lot of this stuff was, but I was just wondering, I don't know if, if you agree with that train of thought and, or if you think there's any other thing that maybe made this such a pressing question in the nineties, like why did this come up so much uh, at that time? Yeah, I actually, I'm going to go on a tangent, but because I think what it really does is it captures a couple like cycles that we see in in history, um, especially when it comes with philosophical movements or, you know, just eras of thought, you know, the tangent being, I always think about this same concept with escape theology, which if you're not a, uh, someone drenched in Christian theology, it's it's the idea of the rapture. It's the idea of the end times that there's going to come this moment where human beings are taken out of this world and all the bad people have to stay and suffer as the world burns. And then the good guys get to come back and take it over after all the bad guys are gone. Right. Yeah. Um, you see them left behind. And, you know, growing up, I always thought that that had just always been a part of Christian theology. But as I, as I studied theology, I, and history, I came to discover that it's actually incredibly modern. It's it's really a 20th and late 19th century phenomenon. And essentially what it was was it was this it was this movement in Christianity that began with this idealism grounded in modernism, which is that there is a progress to human history that's moving towards utopia, right? That there's the inevitability of progress. That human beings are up and to the right and give us enough time and we're going to make heaven on earth right and this had really infected christian belief this ideology this this worldview and it got to the point where they were saying well if we could just get christian leaders in every major nation uh there will never be war again there will never be uh violence or or disease and what happens is world war one right the greatest loss of human life in human history with all these christian countries at the center of it and essentially what that did was it shattered that delusion it shattered that belief of the inevitability of human progress and suddenly out of that shattering comes escape theology where it's no longer well we're going to save this place by becoming good enough it's actually oh no we're going to take our ball and go home one day this place is totally screwed so we have to form a belief that is essentially about getting out of it right and i only say that because i think what you capture about the 90s is the same effect um there was this belief in 
I don't know if you want to call it capitalism. It's certainly drenched in modernism itself, which is this idea that we are going to get to a society where we earn enough, we build enough, we have enough technology, we have enough comfort, really. Comfort is at the core of this. That we're going to get to this utopia where everyone has meaning, everyone is satisfied, everyone um, is good, essentially. Is happy. Is happy. Yeah. yeah, perfect. That's the word I'm searching for. And what we find in the 90s is we win and we're able to build we our society it. and it doesn't happen, right? Yeah. It doesn't come. It doesn't it doesn't become the modern utopia that we all dreamed of. It doesn't fix us, right? Yeah. We get access to all the stuff. We wipe out the major enemy and we're still in the same existential conundrum um, that humanity to some degree has always been in, which is the search for meaning and not finding it in the things that we think we're going to find it in. So I absolutely think that what you're seeing is a turning over of that ideological cycle that is such a part of human history. But it's a fascinating point. I think you're right. I think the end of the Cold War is a key part of that. The rise of capitalism. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny, you may have answered my next question for you because it related to this, because I've we framed it as a pressing question of the nineties, but I was wondering, is this, is this still a pressing question? If so, why? And if not, why you've kind of, I, I think you've given a bit of an answer in terms of there's something about it that's cyclical. Yeah. That sort of yeah. comes around and then leaves for a while thinking about it. I, I had two kind of thoughts on the point. Um, in terms of like, well, is this a pressing problem now? And if so, why? If not, why? I think in a sense it's not. And I think there's two different reasons why I could identify for that. Um, the first is that we're in a time of uh, chaos that basically, yeah. and it's it's very telling that this was in the late 90s that these questions became very forefront. 2001, you know, 9-11 happens and at least for American culture, I don't think that the view of everything's perfect, so why am I not happy? That was no longer a relevant question because everything was not perfect. That from that point on, it's like, well, no, there's very clear circumstances around us that need to change. And I think it started with with 9-11 and anxieties about security and terrorism, but it has, it has prolonged through the 2008 financial crisis and then through the 2010s was just i mean take your pick um but there's been anxieties at the heart of yeah. modern living that are very real external things uh that i so so i in a way i, I think that the question just hasn't come up for that reason it eventually will but you know for now it's just not what is at the forefront of the cultural consciousness in a similar way though i i in maybe a more cynical way I also kind of think that the rat race culture just got smarter about how it's presented. Yeah. To people. Yeah. No, it's life that coaching. I, it's the grind. It's, it's yeah. coached in positive things. Right. I think it, it reminds me of, did you, you haven't seen the office. I forgot about that. Um, so, you know, the office kind of, I think is also part of this cultural conversation, but I think it's very telling that the last episode of the office or one of the last episodes Jim goes to work for a new kind of hip startup and they make a lot of, they, they, they get a little of some jokes and bits out of the dichotomy of leaving uh, the, the Dunder Mifflin paper company, which was a very prototypical 
90s white collar sort of hollow empty work culture into this 2010s work culture which is like everyone's dressing casually and they have uh you know better food and drinks and they act like they're all friends and they act like the you know the company cares about you more but there is a little bit of smart commentary there that they they sort of poke fun at i it doesn't really get this deep but i think you can read into it that it's still kind of the same even though it's being painted differently and I, I think that that there's an element of that too, which is that, you know, we uh, corporate cultures recognize that you need to make it seem like there's something real at the heart of this. You can't just have mindless drones because they will start hating their life. Um, but ultimately they're still the same thing and yeah. it, it, it doesn't really mean anything different. Uh, sorry, I guess I just ended up talking for a bit, but the question was, uh, do you think this is a pressing concern anymore? Those were two th- reasons why I think kind of it's not. Uh, I don't know if you have anything on that. Well, I, it's it's. I guess the premise of the question for me is is flawed, John. And uh-huh. You're a dummy, and you yeah, should obviously. Ask. No, I, I think going back to what you said, where it's the the concept of attachment is the problem. So. Is the idea that um, this I've gotten everything I want and I'm still not happy? Is that pressing? No, but I think it's just a different side of the same coin of us seeking ways to define ourselves and to produce joy and to produce contentment in the wrong places. So I think you're often going to see people seeking that definition of themselves through one of two things. Usually they're asking the question of what is preventing me from being happy? It's a very negative, negational identity, right? I am not happy because this is in the way. And that's going to be what you see the most in times of chaos, right? Uh, It's what you're going to see right now in in our time. Yeah, You know, people aren't asking, why do I have everything I want and I'm still unhappy? Because they have this idea that it's the things in the way that are preventing them from getting there. So there's a striving that defines it. And and once they get rid of all the people they don't like or they get all the politicians in power that they like, when they get everything that they want, they are eventually going to come to a point of, I've got the world I wanted to create and it hasn't fulfilled me. It hasn't actually given me what I thought it would, right? Yeah. And then we'll see this, that, and that's a cyclical part of it, but I still think at the core of it is the same problem, which yeah. is that concept of... Uh, of attachment of there are these things that if I could just get them or if I could just get rid of them then and then I would be completely okay right yeah absolutely so so an an- the answer to your question is no I don't think that's pressing I just think we're finding it in the opposite direction but it's still the same problem yeah you know actually you unwittingly answered my second question uh, which was a lot of people new to spiritual writing and language will sometimes find the idea of becoming detached uh, kind of off-putting or maybe even disturbing. And I was just, a- I was going to ask you to sort of explain what the dichotomy of attachment detachment means um, and, and in your own words, you know, how that plays out. But I think you just hit it. I think that's exactly what we're talking about that it's not about, and the key is it's not about disengaging, I think is, is a key part. And it's not about, um, you know, not taking an interest in or joy in the things that are around you and in the relationships you have and stuff. But it's about 
how you bring expectations to those things. Yeah. If you think that those things are in and of themselves where you will find contentment and peace, because once you bring that level and, and, and so they call that a lot of spiritual language calls that attachment because I'm attaching myself, my, my own prospects for uh, what I desire out of life to these things. And doing that immediately makes it impossible for me to get to that place as counterintuitive as it sounds. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know, that, that was my question, but I think you answered it beautifully unless you have any other thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, that, I think, yeah. I think what you said is spot on. It's just, yeah. I mean, it's as simple as in, as in a weird way, it is very uh, in the clouds and it seems hard to understand, but I always find that people kind of get it better when you ground it in control. It's, I can't control anything outside of myself. So if yeah. my contentment, if my joy, if my peace, if my identity, if my definition of who I am, why I exist is tied into something, someone outside of me, um, outside of my internal world, right? Then I am fundamentally tying myself to an illusion. I'm fundamentally yeah. tying myself to something that, can completely go against what I want it to be, what I want it to do. Right. And that is yeah. it's an impossible place to find peace. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. And it, again, intuitively, we know that when you say it out loud, you're like, yeah, obviously if, if my joy is tied to my wife doing what I want her to do to my attachment to that relationship, to her as a concept, as a certain type of person, then I'm set, I'm, I'm done. Right. Yeah, you're dooming yourself. Yeah. Yeah. What I came away with from this movie on the most recent rewatch is the universal human quest of answering this great question of our humanity, which is do I matter? You see, as I watched The Truman Show, I think I reflected the most on two key ways that I, I often seek to answer that question. One is through comparison, watching the lives of others, measuring them against my own, determining my value or lack of value based on what I see. And then the other way is through the external, through the others in my lives. I try to seek value through how I perceive the way I am viewed in the eyes of others? Do they like me? Do they care about me? Do they approve of me? And as I sat with this, I think I realized, I believe we often try to answer this crucial question of do I matter by believing that we are Truman, that we are being watched and our lives are followed along, that we are uniquely cared about, exemplar, important and crucial in people's lives, thoughts, feelings, and memories, that we are ever-present and always on someone's mind. We tell ourselves that if we are central in the hearts and minds of others, then we are exceptional in the comparison game. Whether good or bad, whether they love me or hate me, I am more important than someone else, than other people in X person's life. Or if we are uniquely observed by others, if they're following along, if they're trying to constantly dissect who we are, what we do, if they're just thinking about us all the, other, all the time, they're watching us. Well, then we can tell ourselves that if we play our cards right, we have the opportunity to be remembered, 
to be uniquely impactful on our world, to have a legacy that goes beyond us. It gives us what appears to be quick, easy, intoxicating hits of a nice, tidy answer to our question. Of course I matter. I am being thought about. I was told that I do. This is why Truman's existence is so strange to me. It names a fantasy that we all at times feed, desire, and seek to be the center of our world, to have our lives be much watched television for everyone. One that some psychiatrists have argued should be a type of delusion named after this movie itself, the Truman delusion, they call it, the belief that one's life is a TV show. I mean, this movie names that in us. And though the Truman delusion is extreme, see, I do think we all buy into it in our own smaller ways. I know I do. I do every time I assume that someone is world-shatteringly mad at me. When I fantasize that someone I care about is just stewing about that crappy thing I said offhanded three days ago at a party that must have just ruined their day, which is funny. Because, you see, the times where I really have a conversation with a person I think has been stewing about something I said, well, I tend to find that they haven't really thought about it, and thus me, at all. It may have upset them. I may owe them an apology. But they haven't given it the thought, the weight, the dwelling that I thought they would have. And honestly, that's why I avoid those conversations. I don't just ask them, did this thing I did really bother you? Because I'm afraid the answer will be no. I'm terrified to find out that the world isn't waiting on me with bated breath. I think I would rather sometimes believe that people hate me for the smallest things than discover that they haven't thought about me at all. And I think that's the existential fear that this movie got me thinking about. That is... When we are forced to sit by ourselves with reality as it is, we often find no reason to answer our question of do I matter with yes at all. We look at our universe, and the truth is that we are not exemplar. We are not critically important to the continuance of space and time itself. That we are not, in fact, the center of the universe. We're just one of the herd in human history. See, I feed the Truman delusion because it gives me a reprieve from facing that reality. It lets me turn the answers to that daunting question into something measurable, concrete, absolute, achievable. It tells me I can know I matter by looking at my bank account, getting my wife to say she loves me, doing something that I know will get me praise at work, hearing applause after one of my sermons. I can avoid reality by seeking little hits of, yes, I do in fact matter, by living my life with an objective or more often a presumed other, people I presume must be following along, people I can please by predicting what they need from me to make myself worthy of their attention, worthy of being remembered, things that let me repeat to myself, I exist and that is good and that is crucial to the ongoing existence of the things around me. And yet, None of these things actually change the reality I am running from. They are fleeting. They fade. 
leaving us needing the next hit each time the universe presses in on us again. They're just as grounded in time as I am. Because the truth is they too eventually get lost with time and age. The things I do to impress age with me. And the memories I leave behind, those fade. Which, you know, sounds bleak. But this movie reminds me that there is a better answer to our question. That the answer to do I matter isn't actually an either or, yes or no question. It's a both and paradox. One that though harder to define, harder to grasp onto, provides a true foundation for meaning in our lives. One that I try to desperately hold on to each day, that I am totally unremarkable and utterly unique. Not because of anything I do, but simply because I am. That I am both just one person in the throng of humanity and someone here and now who possesses a totally unique life that is available only for me to live in this moment. That my actions won't be remembered for eternity. They won't ring out forever, but they will impact how I and others experience our world right now, in this moment in time and space, in the little fleeting seconds that I have. That this life simply isn't about me, and yet, paradoxically, I am the one living it. And in that paradox, the whole question becomes simpler. It's not whether I can do enough to matter in some grand cosmic way. It's just, who am I in each moment of this stupid life? It's not, will I be remembered forever? It's just, can I ease suffering right here and now? Not to be remembered, but because this moment would be more divine than if I did otherwise. Can I love this person or myself right here and now? Not to earn attention, but just because love is sweeter than hate. And whatever this moment is, I can be sure that it could use more of the first and not the latter. Can I just value this moment, regardless of whether someone else tells me that I'm sh I should or that it's good? Because it's all I've got. It's singular, which makes it infinitely worthy of being cherished for what it is and used for a purpose that's good and true. You see, that paradox for me is the only answer I have found that can be true, that can survive this reality, that can actually give me meaning in the only place I can find it and foster it internally, humbly, and presently in the cherishing and honoring of each moment of my singular life and the love that flows outward to the singular others and the singular moments all around me. That is what I think the end of this movie captures so poignantly, so powerfully. For me, the final scene captures the fear that comes with reaching the end of our Truman delusion. It shows Truman passing through the sea, overcoming all the false fears of fantasy and fake memories implanted and developed and fostered in his head. Him reaching an outcome that is not concrete, dualistic, or easy, one that provides no answers, the edge of the dream, the edge of the delusion, the edge of what has always been his world, a door that leads into blackness, the total unknown, into a life defined completely differently 
than what he's always known. A life defined by being unknown, unwatched, unspectacular. And what a beautiful scene it is. His false god, his source of false but intoxicating meaning speaks from the sky and says all that this delusion would want us to hear. You are special. You matter. And I just want to read this scene because it's, it's perfect. Truman asks, who are you? His God says, I am the creator of a television show that gives hope and joy and inspiration to millions. Then who am I? You're the star, Truman. Truman asks, was nothing real? The God says, you were real. That's what made you so good to watch. Listen to me, Truman. There's no more truth out there than there is in the world I created for you. The same lies, the same deceit. But in my world, you have nothing to fear. I know you better than you know myself, than, I know, than you know yourself. Truman, you never had a camera in my head. His God, you're afraid. That's why you can't leave. It's okay, Truman. I have been watching you your whole life. I was watching when you were born. I was watching when you took your first step. I watched you on your first day of school, the episode when you lost your first tooth. You can't leave, Truman. You belong here with me. Talk to me. Say something. Say something, god dang it. You're on television. You're live to the whole world. To which Truman responds with a smile. In case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Yep. He takes his bow and he exits into the darkness of the unknown. Truman finds that paradox at the end of his story, at the end of fear, at the end of terror, at the end of being the center of the universe. And with it, he finds the truest smile of the entire film, the first real grin of his entire life, a grin defined by peace, joy, excitement, presence, acceptance, and readiness to move into a world that he can define for himself, that he can explore without the presumed eyes of others telling him that it's good or worthy, that he can experience without the weight of asking, do I matter in the eyes of others? He walks into a life and world that he knows matters because he knows that on the other side of all that fear, dismantling, deconstruction, it is a life that he can actually claim is his own. For you, the day Bison graced your village was the most important day of your life. But for me, it was Tuesday. It was Tuesday. I just love the idea. I'm obviously right there with you. But the idea of sort of the process of making yourself not a protagonist. Yeah. That we all that we all see ourselves in that way of obviously the things happening to me have me at their center. And you have to do... I, I think what we would call what you and I would call spiritual work to essentially find perspective and find balance. Yeah. And I think you're right on the money that there's two sides of it, that I am not the most important person in the universe, but that does not mean I am unimportant. Yeah. And that you're, you're sort of trying to strike at the center uh, between those two ideas. 
uh, yeah, I, I think that's spot on. I, I, I loved everything. Yeah. So I guess what I would ask, well, first, thank you. But what I would ask yeah. is, I think one of the things that I really, in terms of that balance, right. Um, and in terms of that delusion, let's start there. How do you respond to this idea that we so often want meaning to be defined through self-centeredness or by defining ourselves through the eyes of others? Like, how do you respond to that concept? Do you find that to be true? And why do you think we do that? I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely true. In a way, it gets a little bit into the territory of what we were talking about a minute ago uh, after, after my essay that I think it, it, you, you can frame it in those terms of attachment and detachment again that, you know, but, but in a much more complex way that we use uh, relationships as a way of creating value in ourselves or in others. So there becomes this element of if this person isn't thinking about me or isn't thinking about me highly or isn't respecting me or whatever, then I don't have value. The value that I have must be placed into terms of what do the people around me um, think of me? And over and over again, I think we are we are told and we are, are presented with the fact that that doesn't work. Um, and it doesn't work in a couple ways. Obviously to start with, you're not the most important thing and getting to the things you were saying that will eventually come crashing down because you'll have to be forced to um, live in the delusion of never really pushing against that viewpoint. Cause you know that if you do, it will come crashing down. Yeah. I think what's interesting, though, too, and something I was thinking of, um, and I kind of wrote down halfway through as you were talking, I think an interesting thing about this movie is the way that, you know, if there was a world in which you were the center of it, that would be truly horrifying. Yeah, that would yeah. be that would that would be and horrifying for you. You would feel trapped and uncomfortable. And what's weird is it actually made me think about um celebrities and, and it, again like going back to what i was saying where there's lessons th- this lesson is given to us all the time but most of us just willfully ignore it but you know over and over again people who have attained celebrity status will tell you this sucks this is soul sucking dr- and and draining having this many people care about you and believe that they know you and be- and and think about you is just this this misery um because i think it's back to what we were saying because it puts the universe out of balance for them yeah yeah it 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 puts them in 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 an opposite way from most of us struggle with the fact that you know we are trying to make ourselves more important than we are and i think that they often will get into states of being told over and over again how important they are and almost wanting to escape from that Ironically, one of the most interesting celebrity voices that to talk about this with is Jim Carrey himself. Yeah, who has spent and I, if you haven't, um, there's a several documentaries out there, or at least one main one I think is maybe what I'm thinking of uh, with him in the last couple of years, uh, just talking about his status in the world and and 
he largely he didn't quite retire, but he's largely been absent from the public eye for years. Um, and a lot of it is that he has this internal sort of crisis of it's just it's just an unreality being so popular and being considered so closely by so many people that there's something disturbing about that long term. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if that was a, a direct answer. No, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny because it's it really is a drug. I mean, it really is addictive if we're being honest, you know. Yeah. I, I think I use the language of hit and and dose because as I mean, I, even as I was thinking my own life as someone who preaches, it's so easy to live for applause or to live for recognition or to strive. And, and what I think I had to come through in my own profession is, you know, I, I might spend 10, 15 hours prepping a sermon, right. Um, on a bad day where I'm just really diving into perfectionism. And if I'm doing that for someone else, I'm going to get 30 seconds of the highest high you'll feel, you know, the attaboy the Oh, you, you moved me so much. And then it's going to fade. And that work is going to feel like hell. And what I'm ultimately doing is trading out 10 hours of my life, um, making it, you know, a form of bondage to get a second, a second of that high. Right. And, and I think that's what happens when we define ourselves through others. I mean, I just think that's one of these things that is an unavoidable is that we miss our life striving for something that is utterly fleeting in the worst way. Right. Um, and there's that counterintuitiveness of actually the way that you find meaning is to not care about. And I don't mean that in like an unhealthy way of not getting feedback when you're a jerk or whatever else, but to not care what the thing does once it leaves your hands. Right. Um, yeah. to find joy in the work, in the process, in the, the des- and have the desire to do good in the world but not let the results be what define you. Right. Um, or that give you some sort of meaning cause they're just going to be fleeting. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if that makes sense, but no, absolutely. But I, I definitely think you're right. I mean, the, the concept of celebrity feeds into that too, of being seen, it'll drive you mad. If that is the core of your life, it'll drive you absolutely insane because it's as hollow as it gets. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the things that this movie captures really well john is the process of deconstruction right that like ed harris's character says early on we choose ourselves for much of our life and like ultimately the process that we watch truman go through is the deconstruction of what he thinks who he thinks he is what he thinks his life is about that ultimately lets him choose to not live in the south to actually go into the risk of something totally unknown to him, but it's for the first time of his life, it's a choice he gets to make, right? Yeah. Um, basically to break free of programming of whatever you want to call it that he's been given. How have you found that connection between deconstruction and ultimately being able to find some level of meaning in your life? Like what is the, the relationship between those things? That's a good question. I, it's something you and I have, have discussed uh, 
many times and it does get to the you know it is worth noting just very quickly that i think a lot of people maybe misunderstand the term deconstruction because they they think it entails uh you know getting back to the fight club thing they think it entails anger and violence and destruction when really it's just a a pulling apart of and and an understanding of and it's it's you know thinking about this movie i I think it's such a great version of what deconstruction means because all that really happens is he notices things that were always there and i think that that's been my relationship with deconstruction that that i had and so for me there's been several things in my life that i've gone through that process with the most obvious would be you know spirituality that i think i was presented a view of spirituality growing up that was very one dimensional at least for me yeah that that had significant that that had parts of it that you know in a sense i always knew i didn't really uh sign on to i didn't really like i mean if you just want to get specific i was raised in conservative christianity um and virtually everything about how that the that viewpoint looks at the afterlife my entire life i knew this doesn't really make sense this doesn't really work for me uh this doesn't there's holes in here that i would never accept if you were just to hand it to me but because i was raised in it i just took it for granted that it was fine and i just had a blind spot to it and I think that's what deconstruction means, at least for me, is it's just the process of, you know, trying to notice the things that are all already right in front of you. Yeah. Because there's so many things that we just take for granted that's, that there's there's beliefs that we have or there are, um, you know, uh, relationships or, or circumstances or things that we just choose not to look at. And a hugely freeing process is trying to look directly at those things and trying to discern exactly what they are. Uh, one of the most, or, or something that I've, I say all the time, because, you know, I, we, we have friends, I think we both have friends that consider themselves um, spiritual in, in a, in certain contexts or specifically a spiritual in certain contexts. And, I think that people will often present me with the question of, you know, well, do you think I'm right or wrong? Or, or do you think it's good or bad for me to believe this? Um, and usually you present that question because you're looking for an argument because you expect, yeah. well, you disagree with me. So, you know, I, I'm looking for the fight of, well, I think this for this reason, but you know what I, what I, I very often will end up telling people is, hey, I kind of think the most valuable thing is just that you changed at some point. Yeah. Um, there's obviously a limit to that. I'm not stupid. If you, if, if someone's like like a white supremacist and they're like, hey, what is my, my, what do you think of my ideology? I'm not going to be like, oh, well, clearly, you know, you were raised differently and you thought about <laughs> it and changed. So I'm just happy you, uh, you think about your own, your own philosophy of life. There's obviously a limit to this, but within reason... I do tend to kind of take the perspective now of I kind of don't mind where you end up to a certain point. I think the most valuable thing is that you didn't accept what was handed to you blindly. And I really mean that. Like I have friends who have become 
hardcore atheists and I have friends who have become hardcore Catholics. And I have, I have plenty of things to say in terms of disagreement with their ultimate positions. Um, I have more things to say. I have plenty of things to say disagreeing with where they ended up. But in both cases, I would say I, I have said to them, it's probably good just that you thought about it, just that you are going through that, what I would call deconstruction of examining what you are handed and noticing the ways that it doesn't really line up with who you are and seeking to change that. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question. I, I think that that's the, the way that impacts me is that I've gone through several times in my life of just realizing why am I just accepting this thing that's right in front of me? What, what are the parts of it that I'm willfully not seeing? And what does that mean if I actually draw attention to them? Uh, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. It makes perfect sense. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, you and I have a, and, you know, for people who don't know us, have a oddly divergent story in that regard. You know, um, we both started in the same spot. I actually probably started in a more conservative Christian environment than you. Uh, not because of my parents. They're actually not that. They're as liberal as it gets in a lot of ways. But the church that we went to, just to go to a church, was behind the scenes incredibly darkly all the wrong things with American conservative Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. And I and it is often behind the scenes, right? It's yeah, often oh, yeah, headed, yeah, yeah. They put on different the, the hip show, but it was, yeah. Um, yep. And it's so interesting because I left the church very young became a pretty staunch atheist. And really, as I thought about it, I actually don't know if I went through a ton of deconstruction. Um, I went through the deconstruction of what I have been told was true in the sense that I was like, this is all dumb. You're all dumb. None of this makes sense. Dinosaurs are real. You can't tell me otherwise. <laughs> Believe it or not, that was a huge hangup in that culture um, and beliefs. Awesome. And, but I think the real deconstruction happened actually when I returned to spirituality because it was actually the deeper things like a dualistic worldview of right, wrong, right. Either, or, um, of argument of the need to be right, to win, winning and losing. Right. Those were the things that really started to fall apart when I came back to spirituality, kind of like what you were saying. I stopped looking at the black and white and using that to guide how I connect to people, how I think about people. And instead of looking at things like change, like growth, like, are you who you were five years ago? And that being a deeper concern than, do you believe exactly what I believe in statements of truth? Um, and, it, it, and I think that's where meaning can was found for me, at least in spirituality. Because one, I could connect to people, sure. and that was deeply meaningful. But more than that, I actually got to, kind of like what you were describing, build a belief system, a worldview, um, a definition of reality that worked for me, that made sense, that actually was like coming back to spirituality was the first time I had taken all the, I, I, I think the liturgists use this metaphor. I can't be sure, but they talked about like you clean out your apartment of all the furniture of the prayer couch, you know, the hell sofa, all these bits of your old beliefs. But the cool part of reconstruction on the other side of cleaning out the apartment is being able to choose like what of that furniture comes back in, right? Yeah. Oh no, prayer was actually good. It's a different kind of prayer. It's meditation. It's contemplative. But I'm going to bring that that sofa back, right? Um, 
and you kind of get to refill the apartment with things that actually fit that new goal of change, of growth, of development, of progress in terms of becoming something different, right? So I don't know. And that and in that I found meaning. I found something I could actually find permanent, which was the impermanence of what I believe of myself, of the things I've been given. And I guess actually start building on top of that change, right? Awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening. This has been This Film Could Be Your Life. Next time, we're going to be talking about Zodiac, Woo! the David Fincher classic, and a very recent entry onto my list of one of my favorite movies. Um, but we'll talk about that next time, obviously. Uh, the last thing we have is what we call the final question. Mike, what is your final question? Well, John, how much money would you need to be offered to be an actor in a show that requires you to marry and start a life with someone who doesn't know they are on television? (laughs) And then follow up question, how much more money would you need to have a kid with them? Is this not is this not a little bit like asking how much would you how if you were in Germany in the 1930s? How much would you need to be paid to join the Third Reich? Like, it's not that bad. Well, no, I think it's, it's not like, that bad. I'm asking you how much money you'd need to become a prostitute is what I'm essentially asking <laughs> you. I think either way, it's clear that you're basically sell- saying, how much would you sell your soul for? Yeah. Five million a year. I, I, I could do that. Okay. <laughs> That's, I was I was assuming wait, it was going to be wait. millions. But, but not, but, but. Uh, the ability to renegotiate my contract in two years. Okay. Uh, okay. So, so I'm not locked in forever and I get to either bow out or uh, that, that is a little rough though. Oh my God. You just opened up a huge, like, like, Oh yeah. It has to be like spot. 40 year contracts. Well, wait, 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 one second. You, you just opened up a whole thing. I never thought of what the hell was going to happen with the kid. The yeah. kid wouldn't know, would they, that they were no, in a TV I think, show? Would I it just become whole goal was to a family? Of, yeah. Oh, my God. It's dark. It's dark, my That's friend. insane. I never thought about that. So, yeah, $5 million a year. Yeah. Would, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That'd yeah, be fine. It's such a... <laughs> Okay. I don't think we need to go down this rabbit hole anymore. Good to know. I'm going to keep that in my book. Yeah. Keep that. Remember that one for later. Okay. Uh, My question, we actually kind of hinted at, but I'm still curious what you want, what your answer is. Okay. So the Truman show is real. Okay. It's been happening since the late eighties. Prestige TV entered the mainstream in the late two thousands. That's like breaking bad game of Thrones kind of presaged by shows like the wire and the Sopranos. How did they change up the show to keep it relevant to viewing audiences? And I, I wrote, think like genres. Like, what do you think they would have done to the show to make sure that people kept watching? Well, my first thought was that he would get into the meth business. Um, but <laughs> that's, you know, I actually. What if see Haven developed a drug problem? Right. There's that's like a great. Yeah. It's a meth town. Um, yeah. No, I actually think it would probably have gotten wrapped up in the twilight harry potter fantasy craze of young adult fiction. there we go and they would have just started like messing with truman and, and like slowly manipulating him into believing that magic was real through cgi 
um, right. or some level of special effect. So that would be my, I think they would, he would be a messed up dude. Let me just, he'd either become an anti-hero in the breaking bad plot arc, or he would exit the end of the show, believing that fairies are like a real thing. Either yeah. way, it's not boding well. Again, we've already said this for Truman after the show. So no, it's all, it's all bad. It's funny too, though. You did hit upon, I just, I just had a great idea based on what you were saying. So in reality, I think if the Truman show happened, we would not make it resemble our own world in any way. What I would more, obviously this is all horrifying. So I don't want to, I don't want this to happen. I need to, I need to qualify my statement because what I was going to say was if I were to watch this show, (laughs) what I would need from it, what I would want is for it to be a like fantasy world of some kind or a different kind of world. So that way I get both the escapism, but I get to also watch a quote unquote real person responding to it. Wouldn't that be kind of fascinating? Yeah. Wouldn't that be kind of awesome? If like, this is how we end up being Giamatti in this movie. Like this is the kind of mental loopholes. It's it's like, well, I mean, I would sign on if it was in this context, I guess I sell my, well, in both contexts, so, I have sold myself relatively cheap, I guess, yeah, for my so values. Apparently, when we asked earlier, how are these people so evil? The answer is five million bucks a year and the opportunity to torment someone with our fantasies. Uh, so anyways, thank you guys for <laughs> this. Oh, no. This, is, this got real dark real fast. Uh, any final comments on Truman Show? No, it's a great movie. Yeah, it's just, great movie. Yeah watch it uh it'd be amazing if you haven't watched it and listened to all of this i feel so bad for you join us next time for zodiac uh, my name is jonathan divine i'm mike overstreet uh thank you guys for listening <laughs>